The book of uh, Malachi is a prophetic work that was written in the first place to the people of Israel at a time in their history in which many of the Israelite people had returned to Jerusalem and the surrounding territory of Judah after a long time of exile. The history before that time, the history of the Jewish people earlier, had included a past era during which they were slaves in Egypt, where God, where God then freed them from that slavery under the leadership of Moses. When Moses brought them out of Egypt, he took them through a time of wilderness wanderings to the promised land of Canaan. And under their next leader, Joshua, the people took possession of that land. And after a time, they became a great kingdom under their great King David and his son Solomon. But as time rolled on, the leaders over the people degraded, having turned from their faithfulness to God. And eventually, in light of that, all the Hebrew people were conquered by foreign hostile powers. God, by his providence, willed that to occur. It was a part of his discipline of his people he had called to be his people. God willed for them to be conquered and taken away in exile until a future day. But as I said, Malachi is written to a people living now after that era of exile. The exiled Israelites are now the returned Israelites. They have been replanted in the promised land again by God's design. They had rebuilt their destroyed city of Jerusalem and had reconstructed the previously leveled temple for the worship of God. If one were to contrive a story from a human sort of viewpoint, a story with a happy ending, maybe that would be a fine stopping point. The Israelites were back. They had their temple for worship and they worshiped God happily ever after. But a story about the people of God is always more a story about God. It was God who had freed his people from Egypt. It was God who brought them to the promised land. It was God who orchestrated their exile. And it was God who had brought them back in Malachi's time. And if these people were ever to truly thrive in Jerusalem, they needed to understand just how much God must really be the centerpiece of their existence. And so throughout Malachi's writing, this is central to God's message through his prophet. God is telling the people that he has loved them. He has loved them through their history. He loved them through their highs and through their lows. And he is urging them now through Malachi in light of that love to live as people who are indeed loved by God, to live as loved ones under God's kingship, to seek to be a people in submission, obedient to God, to be a people who would pattern all of their lives as a people who are always desiring to know God's will, to more faithfully live by it, to more faithfully be obedient to him. And God is speaking through the prophet Malachi to Malachi's Hebrew contemporaries because they were still failing to get that. The Israelite people, even though they had in history been through so much, even though they were now back in the promised land, even though they had a rebuilt temple for worship, 
were very much still a people tending to stray away from God rather than to live as people faithfully following him. And so Malachi is speaking God's word and identifying areas of life in which the people aren't living in godly ways. God is revealing through Malachi the many missteps that the people are taking. But God is pointing out these failures with a purpose of correction. And again, that's because he loves his people. And really that is why it is that Malachi is a writing of old that also has so much value in our own modern age. When we read of these past wrongs, we will find that we might also be seeing our own corporate or individual wrongs as the present day people of God. And hopefully as we see those wrongs, it will result in our changing so that our lives are in fact lived more faithfully as God's people today. And even more, so that we will come to realize just how much we need Jesus Christ. And with all that said, let's turn once again to Malachi this day. We'll be reading from the second chapter, picking up at the 10th verse and concluding with verse 16. But pray pray with me, please, before we read. Let's pray. Our Father... As we come to your word this Lord's Day, we ask that by the work of the Holy Spirit, we would be given eyes to see your truth and that we would be given hearts more willing to apply that truth to our lives. We ask for understanding that comes from above so that as your word is read and as it's preached and as it's heard, we will be enlightened to our own wayward ways. Lord, help us to see our sin. Help us to see it so that we would flee from it and turn in haste to your son, Jesus. Lord, by your grace, help us to see how true it is that Jesus Christ is the only true solution to human sin. By your mercy, O God, through the means of the Holy Spirit, lead us to our Savior. And more and more enable us to live for our good and to your glory and to his honor. We pray it in his name. Amen. So my friends, Malachi chapter 2 verses 10 through 16. Have we not all one father? Has not God created us? Why then... Are we faithless, faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord 
was witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. Any children who are here today and any adults who can remember their childhood probably know quite well what it's like to build a snowman. You start with just one small snowball. You roll it along the wet snow. And as it rolls, it picks up more snow and it grows and grows in size until it can hardly be pushed another inch. That resulting huge snowball then becomes the snowman's base. Sometimes people also speak of there being a snowball-type effect to some particular happening. And that phrase, snowball effect, instills a similar image in the mind of a smaller snowball growing larger and larger, perhaps in this sense because it's rolling down a steep hill towards the bottom. And I think a snowball effect aptly describes what we are seeing as the word of God is preached through Malachi as Malachi progresses on. In the first chapter, in the first part of the second chapter, we were presented with a flaw in the worship of the people. A flaw in the worship of the people as they were being led by the Levitical priest. The worship of God was being given a secondary place in the life of the people. The priests of God were not faithfully preaching the truth of God so as to instill in the hearts of those who heard their words a sense of all of what true worship should be like. Worship was becoming superficial. Worship was still outwardly being done, but not inwardly and spiritually experienced. There was a spiritual coldness in the worship which made worship only a formal act. And where we start seeing a snowball effect as a result of that initial fall in worship, in corporate worship, is when we see that that flawed worship grows and escalates into the living of flawed lives. When God is esteemed, when God is honored in our corporate worship, we tend to more glorify him in all that we do, in all of life. But when worship becomes indifferent, when it becomes cold, lives lived out snowball into being lives lived with an indifference to God. And Malachi will address other flaws in living life even more as he writes on. But as we start to see this snowball effect here, the snowball effect that flows from an initially flawed corporate worship, what we see is the way life attitudes are now showing an indifference to God among Malachi's contemporaries 
and especially in regard to marriages. And again, we have to ask ourselves as individuals in this day and corporately as the modern church, are we really all so different from Malachi's contemporaries? I mean, isn't it true that it isn't an uncommon complaint among modern people, even modern Christians, to express the thought that no one should be able to tell me who it is that I can marry? Isn't it commonplace, even within the church, that some individuals will push back against any insistence that there should be a restricted biblical grounds before there could ever be a divorce? Or even when grounds do exist, that it might still be an honorable thing to strive to keep the failing marriage still intact. I would argue that the words of God declared by Malachi in regard to marriage is one more area in which it seems that Malachi could just as easily be written to the modern church as it was first written to an ancient Israel. In fact, I would propose to you that Malachi was very much written to us, even as it was written to those returning exiles. Malachi is God's word. Malachi writes as he is being carried along by the Spirit of God so that the word would be preserved for churches of all time. And I think it wise when we start looking at what God through Malachi is saying about marriage that we pay special attention to the way this passage begins. It begins with God saying, declaring to a straying people a reminder about who he is. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? God is telling his people that he is their creator, that he is their good father. The creator, as, as the creator, has every right to place demands upon his people. And as the perfect father, we should understand that the regulations that, God's dictate, that God dictates are not regulations of oppression. They are regulations for the good of his family. <coughs> yes, God makes demands on human marriages. They are demands that should be followed both because he is the only God who gives the commands, but also because what he commands is meant for the good of his people. Malachi's first questions in this passage are not really seeking answers. The answers are apparent. We do have one Father. We do have one Maker. And He has established a covenantal relationship with people that He has called to be His. Malachi in verse 10 refers to the covenant of our fathers. And we know in our days that to be in covenant with God means that we have been made recipients of the righteousness of Christ. Jesus, through the shedding of his blood, secures this everlasting covenant. The love of God does not spare his own son so that we are included in God's kingdom and in his family and in his covenant. And how should we respond to that? Should we respond by claiming that Christ has no lordship over our marriages? Should we respond by profaning the covenant which began with our forefathers and becoming faithless to one another in our Christian relationships? Or should we instead be submitting our marriages to God as he has designed marriage to be? 
the answer should be plain. We should pattern Christian marriage in accord with God's design. And here in Malachi, we are told of two particular areas in which marriage was being profane among God's people of that day. And they are faults in marrying which frequently also resurface again in our own day. The first area of profaning the covenant involves who it is we should marry, if we do marry. The second area involves a profaning of marriage in regard to a disregard to the permanency marriages are to have when forged by God. That first area regarding who we should marry is covered in verses 11 through 13. And specifically the sin regarding who one is free to marry is identified in verse 11. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. We should pay attention here to exactly what's being forbidden. But also we should pay attention to the severity of the words that God is using to forbid it. What is being forbidden is men marrying a daughter of a foreign god. This prohibition against intermarriage is a command from the Lord which is consistent and unwavering throughout all of the scriptures. From the law of God in Deuteronomy chapter 7 in verse 3, the Lord commands his chosen people to not intermarry with the pagan peoples living in the promised land once the Israelites arrive there. The Israelites are told in that verse not to give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. And then the reason for that prohibition is given in the next verse, in verse 4 of that chapter in Deuteronomy. Because to do so would turn the Israelite children from following God and making it so that they would serve other gods. You can read on in the scriptures. In the 13th chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, a man who was contemporary to the time of Malachi's prophecy, reaffirms these same words from Deuteronomy. In Nehemiah 13, 27, it is written, Shall we do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And we have seen that restriction again in the New Testament, which we read as our second New Testament reading this morning. We are told there that believers are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So in all of Scripture, there is this consistent pattern of forbidding intermarriage. But when we read that, we should also understand that that prohibition is not a blanket prohibition on any intermarriage between differing nations or differing peoples. It's not a ban on interracial marriage. And Malachi helps us to see that because he makes clear that the prohibition is really relating to religious intermarriages. The prohibition is centrally against marrying the daughter of a foreign god, a woman or a man who isn't worshiping the true God. In the new covenant, the covenant forged by Christ, ethnic barriers are broken down. They're not built up. God brings into his fellowship people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. There are so many people from so many differing backgrounds who know Christ. So many diverse people who might be joined together in marriage. But a line is drawn. 
A line is drawn by God when it comes to true believers and those of false faith. A line is drawn because of the great possibility that the true worship of God will be polluted. There is only one God. Only one God to worship and when a party to a marriage does not accept the true God, not only is that marriage in potential danger, but so is the purity of the worship of the believing spouse. The real harm in such a marriage is the potential muzzling of a voice of true faith. And as I said, there is a severity to the way God speaks in the way he forbids these marriages, these unions between believers and unbelievers. He calls the sin an abomination. It's called profane. It's described as a faithless act. It's not an unforgivable sin. Christ has died for sins such as these. It's not a sin that should result in a divorce if an interfaith marriage has occurred. But the scriptures also don't allow us to treat the sin as something indifferent. When Malachi writes of this being a profaning act, part of what he says is that such a marriage has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves. You can almost sense how it could be that when a believer and an unbeliever are marrying within the fellowship of a true church, that there is a polluting of the church itself. That's only the first of the two particular areas in which marriage was being profaned and Malachi, in which Malachi addresses. And the second area of concern Malachi speaks about involves the permanency of marriage. He addresses this from the 13th verse through the 16th verse. And his literary way of doing that is with another one of his literary disputations. You who have been with us over the past weeks might remember what I said when I used that word disputation before. A disputation is a prophecy being laid out in the form of dispute between God and his people. God makes a complaint, the people respond to it, and then God clarifies his meaning for their good. God lays out his complaint in verse 13. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he, God, no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. The people then respond in verse 14. Why does he not? Why is it that God does not regard the offering or accept it with favor? And then God clarifies by saying, because the Lord has witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife up by covenant. He goes on, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now let me just interject that what I just read to you was from the English Standard Version, the English Standard Translation of these verses 13 through 16. 
If any of you are reading from any different English translation, the words you are looking at might well be significantly different from what I just read. That's because the ancient Hebrew of the original manuscripts forms some of the hardest words and phrases in the Old Testament to translate. So differing English translations have differences in the ways they translate the text. But even while that's so, at the same time, the other underlying argument really doesn't vary no matter what translation you read. What we are finding is that in the first part of this last section of our passage, in verse 13, it would appear that some of the people have realized that there's a spiritual separation between themselves and God. And they were bringing offerings before the Lord with tears and weeping and groaning as a means of appeasing his anger. But they wept and they groaned because God was not accepting their sacrifices. He wasn't being appeased. And so they then are asking, why? Why do you not accept our offerings? And it's then in the remainder of verse 14 that the answer for God's remaining displeasure is described. God is displeased because of the faithful, faithless way, rather, the men who are bringing the sacrifices are treating their wives. And I think it's important for us to note the several ways the wife is described in verse 14. She is the wife of the man's youth. She is his companion, or you could say partner. She is his wife by covenant. There's almost an escalation that cries out for there to be a permanency in marriage when you read those descriptions. You first marry a woman, the wife of one's youth. She is a wife who is designed to be a perfect counterpart, your partner, your companion. And in that partnership created, it is one that should then grow stronger and, and flourish more because after all, she is a wife by covenant the wife that you have vowed to love and to cherish for all of life. And the concept of being a wife by covenant, remember, is a covenant made in the presence of God, with God as a witness, as it says explicitly in verse 14. We don't really know exactly what a Jewish wedding looked like in Malachi's day. But whatever was done to unite the couple was being done with God as a witness. You know, there's not been a marriage ceremony at which I officiated that I have not said that marriage is being established, the marriage that is being established is established not only in the presence of a congregation, human witnesses, but in the presence of the God who is the chief witness. And though this passage speaks speakly, uh, chiefly rather of the man who is taking the wife to be his wife, the companion in covenant, the vows that are taken in marriage are spoken both by husband and by wife, each to the other in the presence of God. Husbands and wife both take a solemn vow to have and to hold each other from the day of their youth forward. For better, for worse for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, to death do us part. When words such as that are spoken with our holy, 
perfect, almighty God as witness. And when one truly believes in that one true God, you would think that the word divorce would never be raised within a marriage union with God's family and God's kingdom. But what is God witnessing among the people of Malachi's day? They are treating their spouses faithlessly. They are being faithless in their union with their spouse. Faithless because they haven't fully embraced God by faith. And I think we are learning from this passage in regard to the Christian marriage then that in a marriage, a couple should strive to keep intact as well as to improve their union. The couple should strive to grow together in oneness, the oneness that God has ordained marriage to be. And look at verse 15, and you see that the, there is a great help that is given to aid in the maintenance and improvement of the marriage. Malachi writes, God makes them, makes the married couple one, and he blesses them with a portion of the Holy Spirit in their union. A Christian union, you see, is a sacred union. It's for the purpose of, of increasing the world, in the world, godly offspring. So God has this great design for marriage, for the Christian marriage. Our marriages matter to him. And as I just was saying, God doesn't leave us without helping those Christian marriages. We are given this blessing of the inward power of the Holy Spirit as we strive to more and more make our marriages reflective of the greater union Christ established between himself and his church. There are biblical grounds for ending a God-ordained marriage. The Bible allows for divorce in cases of infidelity or in cases when an unbelieving spouse abandons the other. But even as we can acknowledge that truth, we should constantly be praying that more and more and more in the marriages of the people of this church, that our marriages would be strong and more reflective of the church's union with Jesus Christ. There's still one more thing I need to say in regard to those who are married or someday will be married. Knowing God's design and pattern for marriage and consistently following it can face hurdles in life because of our continuing sin nature. For our children here today or for any unmarried here today, it might be true that sometime you will develop a fondness and an attraction toward an unbeliever. And when that happens, knowing God's way is so helpful, but it doesn't always make following God's way an easy thing. And for those who are married, we all know that sometimes marriages don't run smoothly either. And there can be difficulties even though there remain no true biblical grounds for a divorce. Difficulties that can burden the soul and make the marriage oneness difficult. Knowing God's will and his prescribed pattern for marriage, and even knowing that we have the help of the Holy Spirit in marriage, is a, a great starting point. But that doesn't always make those difficulties simply vanish. And so I want you all to know as well 
that God also provides for you the help of your brothers and sisters in Christ. The church and its leaders are here to be of help. So seek out others if it's needed. Seek me out. Seek one of the other elders out. Even with our own imperfections, we would be willing to traverse and counsel through marital difficulties. Because together, together we really do need to respond to God's love for us by living more faithfully to Him. He is our God. He is our Father and our Creator. And it is our great privilege to live well and to help others live well in light of the love He has so mercifully shown to us. For any person who is moving towards marriage or any who are married, we should all desire to live more to the glory of God. And for every one of us, every one of us, as we traverse life, and find ourselves failing, well, that most of all should cause us all the more to rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ. There are great demands being put on us in marriage when we read a text like this. We also should realize that we are often great sinners. So we need a great Savior. Persevere well but always, always rest firmly in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.